Has anyone ever promised you the earth? That's a phrase we tend to use when someone makes an extravagant promise that they are unlikely to be able to keep. They promise the earth, but they deliver very little. Well, this third beatitude, these sayings of who are truly blessed, uh, the Lord Jesus literally promises the earth. He, he, He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus promises the earth uh, and we know that unlike others he can actually deliver what he promises and we're going to start with that promise this morning Uh, we're going to start with the the second half of this beatitude uh, and look at what's on offer Uh, and then we're going to come back and look at at what it's offered to Uh, so firstly uh, this morning we have the promise of the earth and the promise of the earth there are people in our community who, who are, are literally uh, promising people uh, an eternity on this very earth. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses were particularly active here and in many other communities over Easter. and They take this beatitude and combine it with a few verses in Revelation and say that 144,000 people are going to get into heaven and everyone else is going to live forever on the earth. And uh, as part of the, their evidence for that, they'll say, well, well, look, it says right here, the meek will inherit the earth. It doesn't say they'll inherit heaven. They'll say it's a misconception that, that all Christians or even most Christians are going to heaven. Effectively, they teach that God has two uh, redeemed peoples, uh, two classes of Christians, the, 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 the anointed ones, the 144,000 who will live in heaven and rule with Christ, and, and then everyone else who doesn't quite make the cut, uh, who will live forever on earth. Whereas the Bible teaches that, that all those who believe in Christ will go to heaven. Uh, for example, Jesus uh, says very well-known words, In my Father's house are many rooms, and he promises to prepare a place for us there, and come again and take us to himself. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship, our true home uh, as Christians is in heaven. The author to the Hebrews writes, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Uh, so if we have believed in Jesus, we share a heavenly calling. There is uh, the promise in the Bible of a new earth as well, but it always goes together with the promise of the new heavens. And so Peter says, we looked at it uh, not that long ago in the evening in our series in Second Peter. Uh, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In the second last chapter of the Bible, the Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And he hears a voice that, that says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The reality is that there is no sharp distinction in the Bible between the new heavens and the new earth. 
Certainly not to give the impression that there would be two different groups of people living in each one. Uh, and, and as people have, have thought about this, uh, I think we're, we're not told uh, as much as, we, as we'd like. Are we, are we living between the new heaven and the new earth or how exactly does it work? Uh, I don't think we can say for sure. In, in his book Heaven and Hell, uh, Edward Donnelly uses the following quotation. It's printed on your, on your service sheet on the back. Since where God dwells, there heaven is. We conclude that in the life to come, heaven and earth will no longer be separated as they are now, but merged. Believers will therefore continue to be in heaven as they continue to live on the new earth. Donnelly says that that teaching, because it has been so neglected, sounds like heresy to some who hear it for the first time. Uh, But he also quotes another author who comes at it from a slightly different angle uh, and says, uh, again, it's it's on your, your handout, uh, uh, basically, uh, as to the location of the place where, where Christ uh, and his people hold their, their central home throughout eternity, a strong probability is that it will be our present earth, first burned with fire and then gloriously replenished. After all, where does the Apostle John see the holy city, New Jerusalem, in Revelation 21? He sees it coming down out of heaven. Uh, presumably coming down to the new earth. Yes, we're not given all the details. We're not given many details. In fact, we'd like to know more. But if we ignore the, the bits that we are given in the Bible, it's not surprising that the cults will come along and twist them to serve their purposes if someone has has attended church for years and never heard anything about the new earth preached from the pulpit they're more likely to be sucked in by uh, the well-dressed sincere people standing at their door Uh, and so to quote uh, ted donnelly again and by the way if you want an easy to read book about heaven and hell I'd really recommend his book, uh, simply called Heaven and Hell. If anyone would like a a copy, I can get you one. He says in that book, when the Lord Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, he meant exactly that. And we can say as well, when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, that isn't just a, a pipe dream, but one day we, we believe that it will actually happen. Uh, so we don't believe there'll be separate classes of Christians, some living on the new earth and some living in the new heavens, but, but uh, in some way, whether they're, whether they're merged or, or whether we, we go be- between the new heavens and the new earth, the Bible promises both. Uh, Romans chapter 8 is really clear that this earth is going to be renewed. Those who are concerned for the the future of our our planet, uh, they they have a a point uh, underneath it all that that this creation is suffering as a result of of human sin. Uh, But it's not up to us ultimately to save the planet because one day God is going to renew this planet uh, Romans 8.21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The Apostle Paul tells us that the creation is groaning for its redemption. 
And is the creation going to be wiped clean of all the effects of sin and renewed and then be left empty? No, surely there won't be a new earth that will be empty, that won't have people living in it. The Bible's promises about the future are more physical and earthy than we often realise. Isaiah 11 tells us, again, well-known words, that the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Perhaps even Zechariah 8 verse 5. And the streets of the city will be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. A picture of the people coming back from exile. But but perhaps we can apply it to the new earth as well. So this is the promise Jesus holds out in this third beatitude. Earth like we've never seen it before, but earth like it was created to be. Satan won't have the final victory over our souls, they will be redeemed. He won't have the final victory over our bodies, they will be resurrected. And he won't have the final victory over this world, it will be renewed. So firstly this morning, the promise of the earth. We don't want to overemphasize the glories of the new earth to the extent that we forget that our greatest joy will be to be with Christ. He will be at the center of it all. But when Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth, he meant it. But then secondly this morning, uh, we'll spend the rest of our time on this one. Uh, having seen the promise of the earth, we come secondly to who the earth is promised to. Who the earth is promised to. In one sense, this beatitude isn't surprising, or at least it shouldn't have been surprising to those who first heard it. And that's because it's a quote from Psalm 37. Psalm 37 verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So what Jesus says wouldn't have been new to his Jewish audience. But like other parts of the scriptures, even though they knew them, they had forgotten them. What did the Jews of Jesus' day think they needed? They thought they needed a military leader to help them overthrow the Romans. They had little concept that inheriting the earth would come about through meekness. And our world is the same. Those who will make it, we're told, are those who will push themselves forward and push other people out of their way. Our world believes that the more you assert yourself and express yourself, the more likely you are to succeed. Whereas Jesus says it's the meek who will inherit the earth. The true Christian belongs to an entirely different kingdom from the unbeliever, and so has an entirely different way of looking at the world. So what is meekness? Well, meekness is not weakness, though it's often mistaken for that. It is not weakness. 
Apparently the word for meekness was used in the ancient world to describe a horse that had been broken in. And that really helps to shed light on it. Think of a horse that was once wild, which you couldn't have sat on without being thrown off. But then someone works with the horse to break it in so that it can be ridden. Now that the horse has been broken in, has it suddenly become weak? Has it lost all its strength? Not at all. But what's the difference? The difference is that its strength is now under control. Rather than causing damage, its strength is is now harnessed. People no longer need to be scared to go near that horse in case it kicks them or, or throws them off. The same strength is there. It, it could still throw them off if it wanted, but the strength is being put to better use. In Numbers chapter 12, Moses is described as the meekest person on earth. But he wasn't weak. He once killed a man with his bare hands. Meekness isn't the opposite of strength. But it is the opposite of self-importance. And that's, that's important to grasp. Meekness is the opposite of self-importance. One definition comes from A.W. Tozer who says the meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson. But he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. And so the meek person isn't a weak person, uh, but meekness is the opposite of self-importance. Meekness is the opposite of self-importance. And the meek person, uh, as Tozer says, is the person who has accepted God's estimate of his life. uh, By the way, that doesn't mean that the meek person thinks they are worthless. Uh, Tozer goes on, the meek person is knows they are as weak and helpless as God has declared them to be. But paradoxically, they know at the same time that they are in the sight of God of more importance than angels. In themselves, nothing. In God, everything. Well, I've said over the last number of weeks that each of these Beatitudes follows on from the one before. They're like stepping stones, like stepping stones across, across a, a, a pond that, that you can't miss out one. And so how does, how does this third Beatitude follow on from the first two? Well, did you hear how Tozer put it? A meek man has accepted God's estimate of his own life. What was the first beatitude? It's a blessing pronounced on those who accept God's estimate of their life. It's a blessing on those who are poor in spirit. On those who realise that spiritually speaking they have nothing they can bring to the table. You know, before we, we hear God's word left to ourselves, we think, well, if I ever had to stand before God one day, I, I could say, well, God, look, I, I've done this, this, and this, this, and this. I, I may not have been perfect, but I've done so much more than them. Look, look what I have achieved. But God's word shows us that, that spiritually, actually, we are, we are bankrupt. We have nothing we can bring to the table. And when we truly realise that, 
we will be meek. Uh, and so meekness follows on uh, accepting, from accepting God's verdict on ourselves. If we accept that verdict, we'll be meek in our relationship to God and also in our relationships to other people. We're to be meek in our relationship to God. What does that look like? Well, if we're meek towards God, that will be seen in our response to his providence and in our response to his world. Or, sorry, his word. Uh, meekness to God will be seen in our response to his providence. Providence being a word that just means God's control over all things. When God brings difficult things into our lives, uh, how do we react? Well, there's a story in the Bible about a young boy, Samuel, who was called to bring a message from God to, to an old priest called Eli. Uh, that God was going to bring judgment on his family. How would you respond to a message like that? Hearing that God is going to bring judgment on you and hearing it from not someone your own age, but from a, a young boy. Eli doesn't respond with anger against God. Eli doesn't respond to Samuel. Boy, you don't know what you're talking about. Eli says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. We, we do see the opposite reaction as well in the Bible. Uh, the Bible records God's people warts and all. Uh, we see the opposite reaction in Jonah. Uh, God asks Jonah at the end of that, that, that story. It's just four chapters. Be, be a good one to go home and read. God asks Jonah if he does well to be angry at his providence in sending a worm to, to weather the plant that Jonah was sitting under. And Jonah responds, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Meekness before God will be seen in how we react to his providence. Do we say, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him? Or, or do we say, like Jonah, I do well to be angry. How dare God bring this into my life? Meekness to God will also be seen in our attitude to his word, the Bible. Jesus' brother James tells us to receive with meekness the implanted word. The person who doesn't think they need the Bible isn't meek because they think they have all the resources and all the wisdom they need uh, to live life. The person who sits in judgment over sermons isn't meek because they, they don't think they need to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Nor is a person who sees the plain teaching of the Bible and says, well, I, I can't believe that. You know, people do that with predestination. They say, I can't believe that God would act that way. Or they hear the command to keep one day in seven special and holy to God. And they say, well, it would cost them too much. It's just not realistic in our day and age. But meekness takes God at his word. It doesn't look for loopholes or excuses, but it believes God's word and it acts upon it. We're to be meek in relation to God. But we're also to be meek in relation to other people. And again, at the heart of this is accepting God's estimate of our lives. 
And it's one thing to acknowledge before God that we're sinners. You know, if we're Christians, by, by God's grace, we have accepted that, we have confessed before God that, that we are sinners before him, that we need his forgiveness and cleansing. But it's one thing to, to acknowledge that before God. It's another thing to have someone else say that we're sinners it's another thing to have someone else point out our flaws and not to react against it, not to resent it. It's one thing to examine ourselves before God and shine the, the, the searchlight of his word on our lives. Uh, something which we, which we should do, uh, uh, particularly as we come to the Lord's table. But it's another thing, isn't it, to hand someone else that torch and let them shine it on us. Where the rubber hits the road here is how defensive we get. How defensive we get when others say critical things about us. Whether they're completely true, whether they're partly true, or even if they're totally false. How defensive do we get? Are we those who are always on the defensive, always super sensitive about what people say about us, uh, how people look at us even? Is it not horrible when we see that sort of defensiveness and sensitivity and self-focus in other people? But is it a feature of our own lives too? Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher in the last century, he, he went as far to say, is it not one of the greatest curses in life as a result of the fall, this sensitivity about self? It's horrible. One of the greatest curses. Lloyd-Jones, interestingly, says, we spend the whole of our lives watching ourselves. And he said that before social media. We spend the whole of our lives watching ourselves. How much more true is that now? But he says when a man becomes meek, he is finished with all that. He no longer worries what other people say. To be truly meek means we're no longer protecting ourselves because we see that there is nothing worth defending. So we're not on the defensive. All of that is gone. Does that mean we can never defend our reputation? That we can never stand up for ourselves when falsely accused? No. The Apostle Paul, he was once accused by a Roman governor called Festus of being mad. Uh, Acts 26-24, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus but I am speaking true and rational words. And yet even there, what Paul is primarily trying to defend is the gospel. And when he does defend himself, he does it in a measured, rational, respectful way. He says, most excellent Festus. When we are reviled, we're not to revile in return. It doesn't mean we're never allowed to stand up for ourselves if something not true is said. But don't hear me, me say that and think, well then, it's fine. I, I can keep just jumping to my defence on every occasion. Uh, during, during the week, uh, we were doing about Proverbs in family worship. And our girls didn't seem to be familiar with the fact that there was such a book in the Bible called Proverbs. 
So I said they should write a letter of complaint to their minister. Uh, but, but I maybe do need to quote from it a bit more. So here's Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offence. Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offence. I wonder, do we know what it is to overlook an offence? Or do we go in the defensive every time there's even a hint that someone hasn't treated us with the importance we think we deserve? Do you know the glory that it is to overlook an offence? Or is that a glory that you know nothing about? Sometimes people tell me things that others have said to them months ago or even years ago. Or even the fact that they thought someone looked at them funny one time. And I'm left thinking, wow, have you really been holding on to that for all this time? It has been well said, as I said to the boys and girls earlier, that we forget kindnesses but we remember injuries. We forget kindnesses but remember injuries. May God give us a, a, a holy amnesia when it comes to injuries and what people have said about us. But it's one thing to say that we need to let things go, that we need to forget injuries. But how can we do that? Well, again, we need to, to see ourselves by God's grace as we really are. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson says of meekness that there's probably no more beautiful quality in a Christian than meekness but it is all too rare and he asks why he says is it because so few of us know what it is to be poor in spirit and to mourn for our sins again it flows naturally from the first two beatitudes if we we realize we have nothing to bring to God if we mourn and grieve over our sins then when other people point out those very sins we're not going to say how dare you because we'll know that, that it's true. And that even if most of what they say is wrong, that there's an element of truth in it. And even if there's not an element of truth in it, that, that we do worse things than they even realise. We can't bypass the first two Beatitudes on the way to the third. We need to see ourselves as we really are. And we also need to see by faith God's hand in our suffering. The Puritan Thomas Watson gives some helpful advice in his book in the Beatitudes. Uh, I've quoted it, I think, on the, the back of your service sheet. Uh, he says, Consider that all the injuries and unkind usages we meet from the world do not fall out by chance, but are disposed of by the all-wise God for our good. Yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful, but, but in other words, he's saying we need to remember that every time someone hurts us, God has allowed whatever it is that he might work it together for our good. It doesn't mean that the person hasn't done wrong. It doesn't mean that they won't answer to God for it one day unless they repent. But ultimately, God is in control. Watson said says we're like a, a dog uh, and someone throws a stone at the dog and the dog uh, growls at the stone uh, but, but they don't look at the person who actually threw the stone 
But we need to be like King David in the Bible who was able to look beyond the rage of a man called Shimei and said, leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to do it. We need to be like Job who didn't look at all the disaster that had befallen him and say, my enemies have taken everything away from me. Uh, But rather he said, the Lord has taken everything away from me. The Lord has taken away. And above all, if we want to be meek, we need to look at the Lord Jesus himself. He's the one who described himself as gentle or meek, it's the same word, and lowly in heart. In Matthew 21, 5, he comes, as had been prophesied in Zechariah, humble, again the same word translated meek elsewhere, and mounted on a donkey. So Jesus describes himself as meek. He, he comes, as was prophesied, meek and mounted on a donkey. And particularly at the cross and in the, the lead up to it. What was it that made Jesus so meek in his sufferings? Despite all the false accusations being thrown at him, despite how badly he was let down by his friends, why didn't Jesus lash out? Well, it's because he knew that ultimately all his suffering came not from the hand of Pilate or Judas or even Satan, but came from the hand of his father. Jesus said, shall I not drink the cup the father has given me and by the cup there he means all the suffering that he was facing at the cross yes brought about by evil men but Jesus sees it as the cup his father has given him and so we've seen this morning the promise of the earth and we've seen who the earth is promised to does this all sound crazy to you does it sound hopelessly idealistic? Does this sound like a, a, a roadmap to being trampled all over by the world? If you have no intention in light of what you've heard from God's word today to, to try and overlook offences going forward, then that would be a sign that you're still outside uh, this kingdom, uh, the kingdom uh, that Jesus speaks about it in the Beatitudes. And that is a a frightful thing because one day this world is going to be purged of every last trace of sin because the new heavens and the new earth will be a place where righteousness dwells and none of us are righteous in and of ourselves. And so unless you have entered by faith into Jesus' kingdom and are covered with his righteousness by faith in him, There will be no place for you in this renewed world that Jesus promises. But but if you realise today your utter emptiness before God, and maybe you're just starting to realise that, if you have seen or are beginning to see your nakedness and realise how desperately you need to be clothed, there is hope Because the next beatitude says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And if that's you today, if you're starting to realise that you need this righteousness, we'll come next week to hear more about what that involves. But you don't have to wait till then to be saved. 
Instead, just come to Jesus today. Come as you are. Don't worry about cleaning up your life first. You can't do that anyway. Just come to him. Acknowledge your sin. Ask him to cover you with his righteousness. Ask him to make you part of his family. And he will do it. He will do it because he has promised, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That is the promise of the Lord Jesus to you today. Amen. Well, let's now sing these very words of Jesus that we've been thinking about uh, from Psalm 37, uh, where he quoted them from, Psalm 37. It's page 72 of the psalm book. Psalm 37, uh, beginning at verse 10. But for inheritance, the earth, the meek ones will possess. They also will delight themselves in an abundant peace. And how can we become like this? Well, by accepting God's estimate of us, even when it's shared by other people. And if we do accept that, then in the words of verse 6 here, at the top of the page, we can rest in him and patiently wait for him and not fret because of what others are saying about us. And if we truly do that, if we truly rest in him, then verse 7, we'll abstain from anger and cease from fury. And if we do that, it's all because of the Holy Spirit working the fruit of meekness in our lives.